Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today, as thousands of Australians return to work, there are new COVID warnings across Greater Sydney and also Melbourne. Face masks are now mandatory indoors and on public transport in Sydney. And fines for rule breakers came into effect last night. The latest cluster in Barella is a huge concern for health authorities now. It's linked to an infected patient transport driver who then infected a colleague starting the spread. Let's go live now to our team of reporters. First to Amber Laidler in Sydney. Amber, good morning to you. Residents there can now be fined for not wearing a mask. Good morning, Matt. Yes, masks are now compulsory in indoor venues, including shopping centres, supermarkets, places of worship, and also on public transport. $200 fines can apply if you're caught without one and without a valid excuse. Not everybody is happy about this new health order. We saw anti-mask protesters marching through Westfield Bondi Junction yesterday, claiming their personal freedoms had been eroded. But this, of course, comes as authorities try to clamp down on this this new cluster growing here in Barala. It's all stemming from the BWS bottle shop. Anyone who came here between December 20th and the 31st, those dates inclusive, is now considered a close contact. And those people must get tested immediately and self-isolate for 14 days. Their close contacts also being told to isolate for 14 days. So to give you an idea about just how many people this is impacting, it is estimated at least 1,000 people were served here at the BWS uh, on Christmas Eve alone. Genomic sequencing has now traced the source of this infection back to that uh, patient transport worker who became infected from an overseas traveller. We had had this as a possibility. It's been confirmed by the genomics, but we have made those links in those people. Clearly we have uh, some major concerns in relation to the number of uh, people who may have been exposed. We've seen workers completing sanitisation this morning on public surfaces, including benches, bins and also in public bathrooms. But Barella is not the only suburb now on high alert. A number of other locations have been visited by positive cases while infectious, including Macquarie Fields, Blacktown and East Gardens. You can find the full list on the Sunrise website, Matt. Now to Nathan Templeton in Melbourne. Nathan, I've spoken to friends in Victoria who are just outraged by the, the delay at some of the testing centres, six or seven hours. Authorities are ready now for a testing wave, are they? Well, hopefully they are better prepared. We've already got some uh, cars lining up here at the showgrounds of people uh, waiting to be tested. There's also 10 new sites opening today uh, and extra staff put on. Part of the issue has been uh, health workers who understandably have been exhausted by 2020 uh, needing a break. So finally, officials have started to 
get it uh, fully scaled up so they can handle more tests. But in the past few days, you'd have to say they've really failed. The wait times, as you said, six or seven hours, people being turned away. There were more than 30,000 tests completed yesterday across Victoria, but until all of those uh, 60,000 return travellers from New South Wales are tested and get their results, we don't really know if we have a big problem here. We've stepped it up again yesterday, we'll step it up again today, but this is not something we can turn on at the flick of a switch, um, and it's something that we, we continue to work on. So. It's still relatively early days, um, and um, you know, if uh, further cases pop up, then um, there could, still could be cause for concern. The biggest concern at the moment is that uh, the restaurant Smile Buffalo uh, in Black Rock, uh, all three of Victoria's new cases yesterday were linked to that cluster. That total is now at 21. So far, it doesn't appear to have spread outside of their close contacts, but uh, those 21 infected people have visited 50 sites around the state, which are now declared as hotspots. So really, the next 48 hours is going to be telling. We'll find out, hopefully, by the end of the week, uh, if we have COVID-free days, uh, then the restrictions on masks and gatherings should be able to be lifted by the middle of the month, Matt. Some similar delays with testing in Brisbane, which is where Tamra Bow is for us today. Tamra, Queensland's been forced to, to really bolster its testing capacity. Yeah, Matt, thousands of Queenslanders still need to come forward and get tested. But even still, uh, this is the same facility that yesterday was overrun with long lineups. It reopens its doors in 30 minutes' time and, well, there's not really a soul to be seen. It's a clean run through to the front door. Uh, but, but completely different scenes yesterday. People lining up for anywhere up to six hours in the heat to try and get tested. Some even turned away as those facilities shut their door at the end of the day, which has seen extra resources brought in. Some Testing facilities are being uh, reopened, uh, as well as their hours lengthened, some going 24 hours to deal with the backlog. Uh, we've also seen more chaos for our cricketers with grumbles from the Indian camp. Some of them saying they're looking to boycott the final test that will be held at the Gabba here in Brisbane because they're fearful of going back into strict hotel uh, quarantine. But the chief health officer says they're more than welcome to form bubbles within the hotel, but they can't leave at any time other than to try or to play at the Gabba. Aussie cricketers will be under the same restrictions, but they say they're good to go. From our position and my position, there is no uncertainty. There can be, there's a lot of talk out there, we understand that, but for us as a group and me personally, we're going to Sydney, we'll play the SCG and then we'll go to, the, go to Brisbane and play the Gabba. Despite grumbles from the Indian side, obviously Cricket Australia says they're yet to receive an official request to relocate that final test down south, Matt. Yeah, we'll watch and wait. Thank you very much to our team of reporters. We'll check in soon for an update. Well, for more on the uncertainty surrounding the fourth test in Brisbane, I'm joined by Queensland Shadow Health Minister and registered nurse Ros Bates. Morning to you. Ros, um, what do you think should happen with the cricket? Well, good morning, Nat. And um, obviously it would be a tragedy if um, we lose the fourth test um, but we can't drop the ball on hotel quarantining arrangements. We've seen what's happened in other states um, when that occurs and it really shouldn't matter whether you're an international superstar or an ordinary everyday Australian or Queenslander. Um, we do have ho hotel quarantines for a rule, uh, as a rule, uh, particularly if you're coming from a hotspot. Now, we've had people with brain tumours who've had to quarantine um, if they've been coming for a hotspot. And, you know, thousands of Queenslanders playing by the rules right now and lining up and getting tested after returning from places like Melbourne and Sydney right now. 
So do you agree with the, the shadow sports minister, Tim Mander? He says um, if the team wants to spit the dummy and disregard quarantine, they shouldn't come? Well, look, I think the Australian team has made it pretty clear that they want to play at the Gabba and, and everybody here in Queensland wants to see the game play. The Chief Health Officer has already said that there would be a cricket bubble so that they can actually uh, congregate together. They are, they're able to get out and go to... Uh, practices, they can play the game, um, which is a lot different from, as I said, people who've been returning from brain surgery, who have been stuck in a four by four room with no balcony um, for 14 days. So I don't think it's terribly much to ask for anybody um, to uh, you know, keep the rules up in Queensland to keep Queenslanders safe as well, and themselves, because they're coming from a hotspot. Roz, that seems pretty clear to us. Thank you very much for explaining it this morning. Thanks very much, Nat. OK, let's get some more news now with Mon. Thanks, Nat. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he hopes tens of millions of Britons will be vaccinated by March as new COVID case numbers top 50,000 for the sixth consecutive day. In a TV interview, he promised 530,000 new doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine will be ready by tomorrow. Despite Britain's Medical Association labelling the rollout a shambles, the PM said that lockdowns may be tightened further as children prepare to return to school. And in the United States, it has hit the grim new record of more than 350,000 coronavirus deaths. The country has reported the most deaths from COVID anywhere in the world. Vaccinations have begun to protect healthcare workers and nursing home residents and staff. More than 4 million jabs have been administered so far, but the program has been criticised as slow and chaotic. For more on the New South Wales Borella Cluster, I'm joined now by infectious diseases expert, Professor Sanjaya Sananayaka. Professor, good morning to you. Uh, this is a really frightening scenario that we've seen unfold here. Thousands of customers uh, who've been in turn in contact with thousands more people. Nine days it was that these infected employees worked while, uh, while uh, obviously suffering from COVID. How critical is that we got on, get on top of this now and how worried are you about the effects? Yeah, hi, Matt. So clearly this has the potential to be, a, I guess, a super spreading event over a period of days leading to a lot of cases. So it is a big worry. I guess another metric that I, I use is looking at the number of cases we've seen in Sydney over the last 14 days. And generally, if that's over 100 cases, so that's only seven a day, which doesn't sound like much, but it means there, there are a thousand contacts or so to identify. If we're seeing more than 100 cases in a two-week period, then that suggests that there could be exponential growth about to occur and it could take many weeks before we see zero cases again. And if you look at early December, we only had about 74 cases in a 12-day period, but in the last two weeks, we've had 247, including some overseas travellers. So that, in, uh, in conjunction with the Borella outbreak, is of concern. It certainly is. One of the other things that's of concern, I think, is just how easily this virus has spread. During these short visits, Chief Health Officer Kerry Chance says that the transmission happened really briefly between customers who are only at the store for a small amount of time. We've seen the same thing with these patient transfer drivers as well. Uh, is this partly to do, to do with the strain or just a reminder just how transmissible COVID is? 
Yeah, look, Matt, it can often be due to a combination of factors. So the, the virus itself, the people who are infected with it, and the environment in which the transmission occurs. So we haven't heard that this virus associated with the Varela outbreak is related to the UK or South African more transmissible strain. Uh, but certainly if there were a lot of people, the ventilation was poor, so a lot of aerosols were sitting around in that area. And if that particular person, for some reason, produces more virus for a prolonged period of time, that could all lead to this sort of phenomenon. Yeah, well, it's triggered tens of thousands of people to go mm. into isolation. Let's hope the numbers come back favourably. Uh, Professor Sanjaya Sananayaka, thank you for your time. Thank you. Here's Nat. For more, I'm joined by Cumberland Council Mayor Steve Christo. Morning to you. Steve, there are now 13 confirmed cases in your council area with the potential for hundreds, if not thousands more. What message would you like to send to the residents of Barella? I'd just like to send a message that stay safe, stay cool, and if you've got any symptoms, even the slightest symptoms, go get tested. We have four testing clinics located in the Cumberland City LGA. They're located at Norville Street, Auburn, Berea Street, Auburn, Long Street, Smithfield, and Maryland's Oval Car Park located at Burnett Street. So you can visit any one of those testing clinics and get tested. So this was a transport worker, we think, um, taking people from the airport somewhere um, and then they gave it to someone who went to this BWS. They worked for nine consecutive trading days over Christmas. Um, is it usual that we're just hearing about this now? I think it's unfortunate. Um, maybe they were carrying it and didn't realise. It's just a little bit unfortunate. We heard about it the last two or three days, so... I'm not sure, to be honest. We're just guided by the advice of New South Wales Health. Um, residents of Western Sydney have now been urged uh, not to attend Thursday's cricket test at the SCG due to this new outbreak. You have lots of people um, from Indian backgrounds in your area. Do you think this is fair, this directive? Look, I think at the moment it is a little bit unfair. Cumberland City Council has a population of 240,000 people. At the moment, 13 have tested positive for COVID. New South Wales Health hasn't gone to the extreme of locking us down as yet. So obviously we're not at that stage. And I'll point out that Cricket Australia has gone to great pains to say that they're putting on a COVID safe event that could possibly host 25 to 30,000 people. So they'll be coming in from all areas and God knows where. So to say that Cumberland City residents aren't invited to the cricket as yet, I think is a bit of a novia reaction and not called for at present. Yeah, OK. Well, thank you very much, um, Steve. You and the birds out there, we'll, we appreciate your time this morning. Well, the government has announced millions in funding for future COVID protection and treatments, including two next generation vaccine studies. The potential vaccines are still in pre-clinical trials at Melbourne University. They could offer a number of advantages compared to first gen shots and wouldn't need to be stored at extremely low temperatures. Joining me now is Professor Terry Nolan from the University of Melbourne. Morning to you. Terry, talk us through these vaccines. How do they from those already being distributed? Morning, Matt. Um, the, the vaccines that we have in trials uh, in animals at the moment in uh, Melbourne at the Doherty and, and in partnership with colleagues at Monash University's Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences, uh, one is an mRNA vaccine 
similar to those that have been uh, recently licensed in uh, in the US and also in England and Europe. And the other is a protein vaccine, um, which is um, assisted by uh, something called an adjuvant. These vaccines are different because they are targeted at a very specific part of the spike protein. Um, most, nearly all of the vaccines which are out there in the pipeline at the moment are targeted at a, at a very large protein. And the bit of the protein that really matters is the bit that attaches to the human cell, attaches to a receptor, if you like, unlocks that, that lock on the cell to allow the virus to get in and then to proliferate and that causes the infection. You can think of the, um, of the spike protein as uh, an arm, if you like, with a hand on the end of it. It's the hand at the end that unlocks that lock to get into the cell. And our vaccines are directed at the hand part, so a very small part and a very focused part of that protein. Um, it's very likely that this type of approach is going to lead to a more efficient um, vaccine, which will also be less likely to cause um, side effects and so forth as well. So in many ways, as you pointed out, um, the mRNA vaccine also more stable in terms of its storage, uh, offering advantages. Principally, though, just relating to the conversation you've just had with your expert, um, in, in order to deal with um, uh, mutations that occur in circulating coronavirus, um, the need to modify a vaccine, if the vaccines become, if you like, ineffective because the mutations are so, make the virus so different that the vaccine, the antibody response doesn't recognise the uh, virus, we have some serious problems. The ability of both these vaccines to be quickly changed to accommodate new mutations is all part of the way in which they're structured. So that too is further insurance in the future um, down a track with, um, with the next generation. Okay, so that's why we need you um, to have yours funded. We thank you very much for your time and thanks for explaining it. We appreciate your time, Terry. For more, we're joined by New South Wales Acting Premier John Barillaro. Morning to you, John. Now, there are 13 confirmed cases in that Barilla cluster, the potential obviously for significantly more. Can you give us any indication about today's numbers uh, and how concerned the government is that this could get out of control? Yeah, good morning, Nat. And uh, look, yes, uh, the Barilla cluster is, is of concern and you touched that in your introduction about the number of people that went through that BWS store over that period. And, and more importantly, there was uh, that transmission that has happened over a shorter period of time of contact. And that, that has surprised uh, health officials. That's why it is volatile and we are concerned. Uh, we'll be putting out those numbers at 11 o'clock as we do most mornings. Uh, but the numbers overnight aren't just about numbers. It's actually about the data behind it, the contact tracing, the source. And as long as we've got that information and we're confident that we know exactly what's occurring, the numbers in itself sometimes isn't actually the measure of success. So, uh, look, we'll, we'll say more at, at, at 11 o'clock. An enormous job ahead for contact tracers, given the potential for transmission there. One of the things you must be considering, John, is a potential Northern Beaches-style lockdown for the area, uh, given how many people were, were at this liquor store. Yeah, absolutely. We, we never take anything off the table. And um, health officials yesterday, Dr Kerry Chant, uh, gave us a, a lot of data, a lot of information, uh, and we'll give that consideration as well. Um, but, you know, we're, again, we're confident because what we saw overnight 
uh, and what we saw yesterday was the ability that we actually know where the source is, you know, where, where the transmission has occurred on those locally acquired cases. And in my mind, as long as we don't lose sight of that, and you're right, the contact tracers have got an, a huge task in front of them, but they've been doing it for nine months. They, they do a very good job of it. And uh, I'm, when you actually see the work they do, you, you, you know they don't take any chances. They actually uh, follow through on every lead. And to, to BWS, I just want to say one thing to those businesses like BWS, you know, the support they're giving the government by releasing the data, the information and working with us, putting in other safeguards. Uh, again, they're exemplary of the business. There's no accusation they've done anything wrong. But that's the sort of work we've got to do as a state to make sure not only we control what's occurred, but making sure we control what's, what's ahead of us. Yeah, look, you know where it's come from, this, this transport worker. That's the fourth mm. transport worker in the last month that's been the cause of this. Uh, what is your government doing to stop these transport workers catching it? Um, because this is affecting now um, a lot of different parts of New South Wales and in turn the rest of Australia. Yeah, Nat, it's an important question. And, and what you've seen in the past is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and what we have, have seen again, it was a transport worker. We've put measures in place to try and boost uh, that arrangement to make sure we protect not only those individuals and, and those, those workers, but also the rest of the state. But when, when we as a state have had 105,000 passengers through Sydney doing the heavy lifting, 45 to 50% of those passengers or those citizens returning to Australia belong to other states. It's like we're the dry cleaner or the car wash. We clean them up and send them off clean to other states. The risk is with us. So what we do need is other states to start lifting their game and taking more of people directly into their states rather than New South Wales uh, being the laundromat. And what have they said to you when you've said you need to take more? Well, the Premier has articulated that at the National Cabinet consistently, that every other state has to do more. I know the Treasurer also sent the other states the bill for the costs that New South Wales incurs, and I think they've balked at that. So my message to the other states, why it's easy to lecture New South Wales, our contact tracing, our health system, our our framework is the best in this country, if not best in the world. Uh, our citizens are compliant, and that's why we've got great success out of what's occurred on the peninsula. Um, but you know what? They've got to do more on, on their side of the border, and that is to take more in the, in the first instance. It's mm. quite an expensive dry cleaning, that's for sure. Uh, John, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Matt. Hundreds of thousands of Australians will be up to $100 a week worse off from today as the job seeker wage subsidy is reduced. The payment is scheduled to be completely phased out by the end of March, but tourism operators are calling for it to be extended as fresh border closures hammer the industry, arguing the benefits will outweigh the cost. For more, I'm joined by Margie Osman, CEO of the Tourism and Transport Forum. Morning to you. How desperately does the industry need job keeper to be extended and how long for? Morning, Nat. Well, look, the bottom line is that the industry's got no hope of recovering until international borders open and we can't survive unless this issue around some sort of uniformity on domestic borders is, is sorted out. So from our industry's point of view, uh, job keeper has to be extended. We, we've you know, we're more viscerally affected, if you like, by both the border issues and any kind of sensitivity to travel. And I think that's basically what you're going to see now. I think people are going to be a bit more reluctant to book holidays and to go to places. So the industry will also be wearing that lack of confidence. 
Margie, we're hearing uh, from businesses all the time uh, that they can't get workers because people are on JobKeeper um, and yet industries like yours um, are in crisis. So do we need to tweak it somehow? Well, look, I think there's a difference between job seeker and job keeper. Uh, and I think that um, from our industry's perspective, particularly you say in the aviation industries, the accommodation industries, et cetera, you know, they need to be able to keep those skilled staff in the biz. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation in 12 months' time where we'll be lucky to have a tourism industry. We won't have skilled workers. We'll have a population that's become attuned to uncertainty and choosing to simply stay at home in the majority of cases. I mean, you've only got to look at the situation down on the south coast of New South Wales quite recently with Victorians flocking home to get there before the border closed. This is a sensitive time of the year. This is when most tourism operators, particularly the smaller end of the market, make their money. So this will be two years in a row, bushfires last year, COVID this year. We're lucky to see those businesses survive. So I suppose the question for government is what's the price on that many businesses and that many jobs and ultimately a whole industry? Yeah, because the northern beaches of Sydney, obviously the hardest hit, um, you know, this summer and those south coast areas. Uh, the Grattan Institute projects the cost of extending this scheme is going to be a billion dollars. Um, so what... I think that's very light on. Now, really? I think it's actually going to cost considerably more than that. I mean, our projections for the last federal budget, when we suggested to government that they needed to consider extending this, was in the vicinity of $10 billion. But when you consider that the industry is losing, uh, you know, in excess of $5 billion a month at least because of no international access and that over this Christmas period people will have made less than half of what they would normally make in terms of what Australians were prepared to spend because nobody ended up travelling, uh, you can see that the industry is in a parlous situation. Yep, so that's a small price to pay, you're saying. OK, Margie, thank you very much for your time. New South Wales is bracing for a sharp spike in COVID cases with thousands of people potentially exposed to the virus at a liquor store in Sydney's west. So far, 2,000 people who visited the Barella BWS have been tracked down and forced into isolation with contact tracing ongoing. It comes as mandatory masks become a reality for residents in Greater Sydney. Those failing to comply from today will cop a $200 on-the-spot fine. For more, we're joined now by New South Wales Police and Emergency Services Minister David Elliott. Minister, thank you for your time. Uh, gee, this uh, Barella cluster is really concerning, with thousands now potentially at risk. Uh, just critical that, uh, that police obviously work with these contact tracers to try to get on top of this. Well, any, any exposure to COVID-19 is of a concern. On the weekend, I was disturbed to learn this morning from a briefing by the police that uh, in Fairfield, another wedding reception operator was, was fined $5,000 because he had twice the amount of people uh, in the venue than he was allowed to. He had nearly 700 there when there was only a compliance of 350. So we really need to make sure people do follow the public health orders. They've got to also know uh, that when we ask them to, uh, uh, to be available for tracing, when they ask them to use the QR code, it's serious. It's because it's for their health, it's for their benefit, and it's to stop the state from going into further lockdown. Mm. So a piece of, even though we have had this awful Christmas for a lot of people, mm. where the Northern Beaches has been locked down, do you think people are still complacent in Sydney? 
Well, no, I don't. I actually think that we're complying um, quite well compared to other jurisdictions, particularly in Northern America and, uh, and of course, uh, in Europe. But, uh, and and, and it's, it'd be unfair to say that, uh, you know, the population isn't listening. 99.9% of the population is listening. That's why uh, the, uh, the cases at the moment are still in single figures. What we are saying is that don't take the risk. All of these public health orders are about mitigating the risk. Uh, and th they're only going to work if people comply with them. And that's why we've had to introduce the, the fines today uh, for those that aren't wearing the uh, the mask in certain um, certain areas, and it's not for our um, our uh, it's not to ensure that we're the fun police. It's not to be a punitive. It's not a punitive action against the uh, the population. It's to make sure that we can um, mm. in, go on the way that we've gone until, of course, the vaccines roll out. Absolutely. Let's hope uh, not too many of those fines have to be issued and people do the right thing. Uh, could I ask you, Minister, about these anti-mask protesters uh, yesterday who stormed through one of Sydney's busiest shopping centres? Um, what is your message to those people who say that masks uh, are, in their words, uh, an attack on personal freedoms? Well, I, I, it, what is an attack on personal freedom is a lockdown. If, if, if we have to go back into lockdown and I can't go to the pub or I can't go to a restaurant or take my, my family out, well, that's a breach of my personal freedom. So anybody who's suggesting that masks are a breach of their personal freedom don't understand why we're asking people to use masks. Uh, my view is use the mask so that we can continue the freedoms that we've already got, the hard-earned freedoms uh, because of the, uh, the, the action that the New South Wales government took uh, at the middle of last year. Yeah, um, go to the States where you've got 350,000 people dead and see what happens when people don't wear the masks, maybe. Good luck to your officers um, out there because they're going to be encountering people, you know, refusing to wear masks. So, you know, let's hope everyone follows the rules. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, uh, and the police have been well briefed. They know what the public health orders are. Yeah. Uh, they'll use their discretion in the event that people don't, uh, uh, don't have the ability or are not able to wear a mask. But um, again, people need to be reminded this isn't uh, to ensure that uh, there's a punishment dished out. This is to ensure that the state goes on uh, the way that it has so well. And we've actually been world's best practice. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, thousands of Australians on JobKeeper will have their payments cut from today. The amount will be reduced from $1,200 to $1,000 a fortnight for full-time workers and from $750 to $650 a fortnight for part-time workers. The scheme is scheduled to run until March 28, but questions are being asked about whether that should be extended. 
Joining us to discuss this, economist Chris Richardson from Deloitte Access Economics and CEO of the Australian Industry Group, Ines Willocks. Morning to you both. Chris, uh, is the economy going well enough right now to reduce JobKeeper? Um, it is, uh, or, or at least it's going well enough to reduce it with the amount that it's reducing uh, today. Sure, you know, there's pain around state borders uh, and some bits of the economy still doing it very, very tough. Um, but worth remembering that unemployment right now was expected to be 10%, uh, and it's actually less than 7%. And, and the current cut, you know, you know that, that sort of $200 a fortnight for full-timers, that's $14 a day, part-timers, it's seven dollars a day that's not make or break for the bulk of businesses it does get more challenging though when the whole thing is meant to finish at the end of march mm. that's a, a a harder ask yeah that, that's a, a frightening date for for so many businesses across the country there are currently uh, around five hundred thousand businesses on JobKeeper. ines what, what impact do you think this reduction is is likely to have well, Matt, we've seen the tapering down of JobKeeper from where it was uh, this time or just around this time last year. So this is not unexpected. So business has been able to plan for this. I think, as Chris said, the, the huge hurdle, the steeplechase to get over is going to be when JobKeeper is pulled altogether at the end of March. Businesses had to work towards that, but that will come as a shock to many businesses and many employees as well. And we just can't keep going um, forever with the JobKeeper program. It's cost us about $90 billion, and that's just unsustainable in the long term. So we need to find new ways to stimulate our economy, to keep people in work and to keep businesses going, perhaps more targeted assistance rather than sort of a the huge blunt instrument that JobKeeper has been. It's kept a lot of businesses alive and a lot of people in work, but we have to probably start to be smarter about it for our long-term economic health. Yeah, Chris, um, a couple of things. We see and we hear anecdotally um, a lot that businesses, some businesses can't get workers because people are on JobKeeper, uh, but also um, that this um, is a, a false economy, that 10% that, that unemployment rate isn't there, but the underemployment rate is huge, so people want more work. Uh, oh, look, uh, and underemployment uh, is a real challenge. A whole things, uh, a bunch of things right now uh, are continuing big challenges for the Australian economy. As Inna says, you do want to move away from JobKeeper. It's been an absolute hero, but it's about uh, protecting old jobs. Uh, and increasingly, we need to get the new jobs. Uh, and that's going to be the story of 2021, if we can keep those uh, virus numbers low, if we can get the vaccines starting to come, uh, then uh, we can concentrate on getting jobs back. But we've already got six out of every seven jobs that were lost at the peak of this crisis. They're already back. Uh, and um, although JobKeeper, we should move away from it during 2021, you can argue the exact date, we should move away, though. It's been uh, created a genuine world of difference for Australia. It's been stunningly successful. And the easiest way to measure it is that if we had another huge crisis in the future, we'd do something very much like this again. It has been really successful, but as Ines mentioned, really expensive at $90 billion. Ines, you think that we, we need to perhaps look at more targeted support for businesses moving forward uh, for those who have been deeply impacted. What sort of measures are things that might be on the table? 
Well, Matt, you're going to still see some big sectors for the economy and a lot of pain. Obviously, tourism is going to be a, a big sector that's going to be hard hit and everything to do with tourism because we're just not having international tourism. And then you can have geographic parts of the country as COVID works its way through that are going to be impacted as well. Seen the northern beaches m most recently, but as COVID works its way through, you can foresee that big geographic parts of the economy and of the country are going to be hit and they will require support from time to time that is targeted and is aimed very much at them. So this is going to need to be sort of really focused in on key parts of the economy. As Chris alluded to, businesses, and you asked, a lot of businesses are now reporting that they just can't get staff because of the level of job keeper and job seeker. Uh, and that's making it this a disincentive for people to get mm. back into work. So this is about getting the balance right. Yeah, exactly. Think more about how we help people. Um, Inez and Chris, thank you very much for your insight this morning. We appreciate it.